This is The Guardian. I'm Laura Murphy-Oates, coming to you from Gadigal Land, and this is The Full Story. Today, we're bringing you something a little bit different, a recording of our first ever live Full Story event. On Sunday evening, I was joined on stage at Vivid Sydney by Adam Morton, our climate and environment editor at Guardian Australia, Gunachamara man and conservation expert Dr Dennis Rose, ACT Senator David Pocock and Felicity Wade, national co-convener of the Labor Environment Activist Network, or LEAN, which is a grassroots group of Labor Party members that lobby on environment and climate. Together, we discuss the decline of Australia's natural environment and how to save it. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. I'm wondering if we can start with a little bit of getting to know everyone on the panel. Um, David Pocock, before you became a senator, many would have known about your exploits on the rugby field, um, but also your environmental activism. You did make headlines uh, famously for being arrested at, at one environmental protest. And that's back in the news this week with the proposed extension of the Moles Creek mine. Was that a, a pivotal moment for you for coming to this, this space of environmental activism? I think it started as a kid. I grew up on a farm in Zimbabwe and had parents who were interested in nature. We used to spend most of our holidays either on my grandfather's farm with a lot of wildlife, we in a national park or on the big Lake Kariba fishing. It was always an interest and I was fascinated by birds and I guess just the wonder of the natural world. And moving to Australia, just blown away by how incredible the biodiversity is here and we're a mega diverse country. The birds are incredible. And I guess also the mammals are also incredible. There's, there's not that many around anymore, the small ones. A lot of them are you know, endangered and, and, and not that widespread, but we are so lucky here. And I guess being concerned about it, learning more about just how much we're, we're, we've lost and we're losing as a country and then seeing the pro- proposal from Whitehaven to mine in the middle of a state forest that is the largest intact portion of boxgum woodland, which is a critically endangered ecosystem, uh, the largest intact section in, in Australia, and we've put coal mines in there. It, it just didn't make sense. And mm. I guess going up there, talking to some of the farmers, 
seeing what they were up against. Um, I'd been involved in all the, the campaigns and petitions and you, you go to the rallies, but at some point when you think something is not right when it comes to destroying biodiversity and worsening climate change, I decided, yeah, I was, I was, I was going to put it on the line and, and locked on with fifth-generation farmer Rick Laird for a day and, it, yeah, I'm glad I did. <laughs> you know, I sort of got to the point where I was, I was willing to cop the consequences of that. I didn't think it was right. There is a proposal this week to extend that mine by a further nine years. It would put it into the late 2030s, yeah. 2040s. Is it frustrating to see that development? It's outrageous seeing fossil fuel projects being approved, given what we know with, with climate change, given what we're seeing. So Whitehaven developed this, this mine 2014. They still haven't fulfilled their offsetting requirements as part of that. That hasn't been done. During the drought, while the surrounding farmers, this is in, you know, Liverpool Plains, one of our best um, agricultural areas, farmers are ploughing in crops, seeing livestock die. Whitehaven stole a billion litres of water during that, that drought and were fined $200,000. And now they're looking to extend it without even dealing with their offsets and this sort of long list of infringements. I think it's pretty outrageous. Mm-hmm. And... You know, that flows on to, I guess, talking about the banks that are actually looking at helping them with an extension in a climate crisis. So mm-hmm. I think that's where people can actually get involved and put some pressure on their bank if they're with NAB or Westpac. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we've got, we've got some serious decisions to make as a country, whether we truly want to tackle the climate crisis and biodiversity or we want to say we want to start doing some, some cool stuff there but continue to be a, a major fossil fuel exporter. Felicity, I believe a pivotal moment for you started with a photo on your childhood wall. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, I um, grew up in the suburbs of Sydney um, and I was on the urban edge where there was bush around but it was a f- pretty standard Bogan family kind of Australian home <laughs> and um, it really was the Franklin Dam campaign that, radicalised me. I was so captivated by what it represented and um, a sense of national identity, the beauty, the importance of that place really, you know, yeah, grabbed me and took me and I took cut out just before that 1983 election. There was a full page ad in the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age which showed the Rock Island Bend, that beautiful place on the river that said, could you vote for a party that will destroy this? And I cut it out and glue taped it to my wall. And when Hawke stopped that, that dam, which is coming up for 40 years, in fact, uh, the first few days of July this year, <laughs> That was for me a moment where two things happened. I realised that I really cared about the environment, that that was pivotal to what I thought being an Australian was, what I thought, you know, was important, as well as a moment where politics did something important. I am got to go to university because of Whitlam's reforms for free education, the first generation of my family, but that moment when Hawke actually stepped in and protected something of such important, you know, international importance that... I, um, you know, that politics looked like something that was important. Mm -hmm. Dr Rose, in the mid-90s, you worked with the government to help set up the very first Indigenous protected areas. For people who aren't aware of this concept, what are they and what do they do? 
Oh, the Indigenous Protected Areas Program, the IPA program, uh, sets to uh, establish protected areas, increase the number of protected areas throughout Australia, particularly in uh, some of those uh, underrepresented bioregions, important bioregions in Australia where uh, there are very few protected areas uh, and in quite a, a number of cases, a number of situations, the bioregion was wholly or, or mainly Aboriginal-owned uh, land. So it's really about uh, coming up with a mechanism to support traditional owners, landowners, uh, land councils, but not to be seen as a government takeover of land. So it was a voluntary process um, and it was warmly embraced by traditional owners. I think once they got over their initial uh, scepticism, I suppose, of, of a government program, but it certainly has proved successful over the years. Half of Australia's protected area system is uh, under the Indigenous Protected Area Program as of today, and uh, that will continue to increase. Can you take us back to 1998 when the first Indigenous Protected Area began? What was that like? Did you know it was going to work and did it work? <laughs> I think I certainly knew there was a job in front of us. Yeah. Uh, the uh, property uh, is the Nantabarana IPA in uh, in the Flinders Ranges in South Australia. It was the first declared IPA in Australia. I went out there, uh, I think, about early 1997. Uh, we ran a series of pilot projects um, and Nantawarana was one, one of those. I think that the country, this, this floor here actually reminded me of the country at the time, overrun by rabbits. They were farming sheep and goats on the, on the I think it was about 60,000 hectare property, feral donkeys, rabbits, weeds, all sorts. It was appalling. It drive over a bit of a rise and there's a mob of 50 goats coming and then the next one and the next one and the next one. Mm. I went back less than 18 months later. Uh, oh, the drought, of course, was, was the other, other contributing factor. Uh, but they got some rain. The Khaleesi virus had come in because they wanted to declare a protected area on country, look after it for the management of the natural and cultural values. They were able to get the... Uh, the, the sheep and the goats off. They had a, a shooting program to cull the goats and the and the donkeys. The country was magnificent. The transformation was amazing. And uh, I think it was that time I thought, gee, I think I'll give myself a, 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 look, there are a lot of people involved, but give ourselves a pat in the back because this is actually working. On the ground, it's working. Amazing. Not perfectly, but geez, a whole, <laughs> whole heap better than what it was. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Adam, you weren't always an environment reporter but now the team that you lead is considered very central to Guardian's daily news coverage. Was there a moment for your early story and environment coverage where you thought, okay, I might do this for a few decades, make it my <laughs> life's work? I don't think it was that kind of uh, uh, striking. I wasn't thinking that far ahead. Yeah. But I'm from Tasmania, grew up there and now live there again, having moved away for a while. And I I hope this comes out the right way. I'm not old enough to remember the Franklin Dam campaign, but I grew up in the period shortly after that where it was very omnipresent in Tasmania, that debate. And environmental issues are central to being Tasmanian, I think. And I grew up with a big focus on what became known as the forest wars, the battles over clearing old growth forests. And there's been a thread through time with a fight over whether to develop a pulp mill that would eat up more and more of those forests. And, and these days that battleground has moved to other issues, including um, salmon farming. So that was always there for me. And then when I got stepped into, at fairly short notice, into 
being an environment reporter at the age, it was quickly kind of a, you know, tap mic, is this thing on kind of moment because all this evidence of significant destruction that we're failing to address that was not even really a second order political media and business issue. It was mm. even further down um, the chain than that. And and it was also at a time when there was a lot of climate denial around. I mean, we still see that, but it just seemed like there was a lot of lying. And I don't like lying much, Laura. And um, it kind of energised me as a, it seemed like there was a, it was a ripe area for lots of reporting um, at a time when I didn't think it was getting the attention it could. It wasn't a second order then. Is it second or third now? <laughs> I'm probably not the best person to say. No. I mean, it feels it maybe it went from you know, fifth order to now it's third order. It's getting more attention, but still not what it could. I think we'll probably cover a bit. Mm-hmm. I wonder if I can go to each of you and, and talk about what you've seen in terms of the environmental degradation in your lives. You've spent a lot of your life campaigning around this, Felicity. How have you seen, I suppose, the acceleration of this decline and how has that played into your work? Well, I guess one of the things that I think is interesting is that there's, I think a lot of Australians still don't realise just how grim it is. And I think that's because, you know, when you, you know, drive around Australia, there's still quite a lot of bush. You know, you can drive down the south coast, there's a lot of trees, but it's become a silent bush very much. You know, it's it's the silent spring that Rachel Carson talked about. There's a much less, many less animals. You, you know, often many places you wake up, there is no dawn chorus. Koalas used to live over the back of my, my mother-in-law's fence. They're not there anymore. You know, we're getting to the point where you just, you can save the koalas off the ground, but there's nowhere to put, make them safe. For me, how that it feels in terms of my life as an environmentalist. When I first started what I do, I did it because I love the beauty of Australia's bush. It's, you know, it fed my sense of being an Australian. It fed, you know, it was, it was really about, it was very aesthetic. It was about saving special places. And it seems that in my work life, we've gone from that to a point where we are fighting an existential battle where, you know, life on earth is being threatened. And it just, sort of, I feel really kind of ripped off a bit, you know, like the, the task has got so much more fundamental and yet the um, interests and so on against us sort of seem fairly still immovable. Um, but it does feel like it went from, you know, we thought protected areas and saving what was pre- the best places was what it was about and now we're actually facing systems collapse. Mm. It's gone from saving this rainforest to saving rainforests overall. And saving, yeah, the possibility that the pollinators work and the, you know, all the things that actually keep us alive. Dr Rose, much of your life's work is centred around protecting one of the largest and oldest aquaculture networks in the world from a lot of the threats that are outlined in the State of the Environment report. Can you tell us a little bit about Budge BIM and what kind of threats it's facing every day? Yeah, well, Budge Beam is, is on a lava flow, so a lot of uh, rocky country, stony country. Um, quite a lot of lava flows in southwest Victoria. Has the scale of, of fish traps, aquaculture systems, stonehouse sites, permanent settlements uh, throughout. Uh, one of our properties has 140 recorded stonehouse sites, for example. Mm. All very sturdy, hardy material, of course. And yet uh, they our, say we were nomadic, but anyway. Yes, yes. Well, uh, again, it, 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 uh, it, it defies the stereotype of, yes. of the people wandering around the bush, a very rich area. And the main reason or the only reason that it, it is like it is is because of the great water supply. There's a lovely big catchment area, permanent water, 
Uh, it's fantastic. And uh, the projections for, you know, the uh, the climate change projections, in fact, you probably shouldn't call them projections. Now they are here, of course, as we well know. Certainly most of the people here would well know. The projections are that it's going to be one of the one of the few healthy systems in Western Victoria or in southwestern Victoria in a number of years. And I'm probably not, well, I hope I'm not going to be around to see it, I think, but there will be battles over the water if other systems are there. So whilst we have a, a protected at the moment, mm. the, the water, which is intrinsic to the, the health of country uh, and also the operation of the fish traps, is this one thing I really hate doing is taking people out and showing them a fish trap that's got no water or any bloody fish in it. So it's not a great projection for the future, I'm afraid, and there will be battles over the water. Mm. And that's magnified right out throughout the country, I'm sure. Mm, it's giving me anxiety hearing that. Yeah. Um, Senator, what are some of the ways in which you've kind of seen the natural world decline or that it's hit home for you or things from that report that really stick out? Um, I think all of us here in, in our lifetimes, we've seen huge decline and we're up against these, these shifting baselines where you do go for a drive and you think, oh, this is beautiful and normal. We, we just, we don't know what we've lost. With the report, really nothing that we didn't know, but to see it all put together, pretty, pretty devastating to, to read it. And, and you could see why the, the, the former Environment Minister, Susan Lay, had, had sat on it and not released it um, before the election. And we now have a, an Environment Minister who released it, rightly said, this is a crisis, but I, we haven't seen the response. If it is a crisis, we, we certainly haven't seen the government respond like it is a crisis. So... For me, that, you know, that, that's something that I think about a lot in working with, with my small team on is, is how do we get the major parties to actually take this seriously like a crisis because we're part of nature. If nature goes down, we go down with her. This is not something happening out there. Right. This is our home. This is what supports us. So there's plenty of work to do, that's for sure. So that's a bit of a picture of the uh, scale of the problem there, but we should probably talk about some of the solutions that are on the table here, starting with the government's plan, the current government's plan. Launching the State of the Environment report, Tanya Plibersek said that the environment would be back on the priority list under Labor after funding cuts and neglect by the coalition. Adam, what has the government done or proposed broadly to make good on this promise so far? I'll try to stick to the bullet points and yes. be, and be uh, <laughs> We won't be able to touch on everything it. for sure. Um, so how you look at this depends a bit on how you want to approach it. Is it glass half full or glass half empty? And certainly things are moving in a way that they were not at a federal policy level before um, the change of government. And, and we've heard a bit about the language the minister's used. She's promised a number of things. Uh, she has set a zero extinctions target, which is a pretty remarkable thing to say given what we're facing, but um, it's something that she will be, will be held up against what this government does, I think. She has begun a process um, to make changes to national environment laws. This is the Environment Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act, which has been for, around for about 20 years, and it's widely agreed has failed to do the job because it doesn't really have impose anything that is mandatory. It's largely... Um, up to the discretion of the minister. In the last term of government, there was a review led by Graham Samuel, former head of the consumer watchdog, who made 38 recommendations. Uh, Tanya Plibersek has said, we'll accept those, we'll act on them. 
We yet to see that flow through, but what it will mean is the introduction of an environment protection agency, the first national body that will have, uh, we're told, responsibility for deciding what developments can go ahead and making sure that the environment is protected. At the moment, we don't have that sort of independent or quasi-independent body nationally. Mm. Um, it sits with the minister mostly, those yeah, decisions. Yeah, that's right. And, and the minister will still have call-in powers as proposed, so we need to see the detail of that. And there's also going to be uh, new national environment standards, which are basically a benchmark against which environment performance and health can be measured if they work, and they'll need to obviously dramatically improve the current health. So how they end up, what they end up looking like will be key. We should see more on that uh, sometime in the second half of this year or into next year. And then we also have legislation that's before Parliament for um, what they call a nature repair market, uh, which is basically setting up a framework to encourage business to voluntarily protect parts of nature and get a certificate to say they've done it. Great idea in theory, probably not really a lot of evidence at the moment that there's going to be a lot of a market for that, where people are going to want to jump in and do it, maybe over time, but seems a bit around the margins at this stage. Won't go on it too much longer, but one of the the key tests on all this will really be whether we have areas which can't be touched and we're just saying they have to be protected and whether we finally deal with the cumulative impact of all the development and the bulldozing of nature we see across the country. At the moment, everything tends to be considered independently. That doesn't work because there is a cumulative impact when we destroy nature. There's a good argument we could just throw scientists, say, up to $2 billion a year at this um, and regulate no-go areas and then fund to um, protect and restore threatened species and places. But we didn't see anything like that sort of money in the budget and there's no sense that's where the government's going to go. So... Mm. Things are happening. Yes, but the lots jury of is things out. are happening. Yeah. <laughs> I want to dig into all of that a little bit more. But first, David, your vote will most likely be vital to passing some of these reforms later this year with the Greens most likely. Is this broad agenda ambitious enough? The environmental re- law reforms, overdue and very welcome. Yeah. You know, the Samuel review was damning. They are inadequate and not working. Mm. Where the government chooses to go with that, I'm not sure. So on the nature repair bill, it looks like the coalition will vote for it, which which takes the crossbench out of play. And the nature repair market, you know, I think there, there are, in its current forms, there are a lot of issues with it. Mm. Rather than getting into the weeds, to start with, this the whole nature repair market is based on an unsolicited report from PwC. <laughs> um, no, no joke. The, the government will openly admit that, but they haven't even followed what PwC recommended. Things like they said that there should be a sort of outline the broads of investment strategy in nature. Government's not doing that. They also said that this should be purely uh, stewardship, sort of optional. The government admitted at estimates last week that this could actually turn into an offset market. So, so many red flags the way they're going about it. The big thing will be environmental law reform. We have to get that right. There is just so much riding on it. But again, it it really depends how they actually want to do it. What do you think about the government signalling on that so far? Plibersek has said that those reforms will be a win-win, a win for the environment and a win for business. Does that concern you? (laughs) Well, we we saw the nature repair market billed as Green Wall Street and, and as 
Adam said, I, I still haven't spoken to a single stakeholder. We've been doing a lot of consultation on this who said, we think there's a big market for this. I, I don't know where this voluntary um, market will will come from and the government's not willing, hasn't said they're willing to put in money to actually get this going like they did the carbon market. So it is concerning. I think the thing that will be good for business is to have more clarity around these are no-go areas. Don't even, don't even try and get an approval. It should be places like Laird State Forest, critically endangered woodland. Don't come trying to start a coal mine there. It's not going to happen. Mm. These areas you'll have to apply. These areas actually, these are where we should be, you know, areas that have already been developed or, or infill, there'll be a lot less hoops. I think in that sense it could be good for business, but it is concerning given, given the challenge we're up against to hear that, that sort of language. Felicity, a big part of your job is to advocate for Labor to take greater action and to bring the, the, the grassroots of the, the party to the party. Do you think this agenda is ambitious enough? Are there particular areas that you would like to see firmed up at the end of the year when we're seeing, you know, the EPBC reforms being kind of mapped out? Yeah, there's two things I'd like to just quickly touch on. And um, both Adam and David have, have talked about this, but the EPBC reform has to have big, fat, mapped red zones that say you are not going to get a yes here to development. Currently, the EPBC has no no. It's all process and there's no no at the end of any decision making. And to, to your earlier point about um, business, business wants faster yeses, but if we gave them clear no's, that would help speed up the yeses as well. So, you know, in that list of threatened species, which is, you know, long and getting longer, and you don't get on that list unless you're about to go out backwards. There's different levels on that list. There's extinct, there's extinct in the wild, there's critically endangered, there's endangered, there's vulnerable. When you're a critically endangered critter, um, there's an extremely high risk of extinction in the wild in the immediate future. There's an argument that every animal on that list may actually not be able to be saved anymore. They're so, so, their populations are so small. So unless we have laws that identify habitat of, of those animals, both on the critically endangered and the endangered list at least, if not the vulnerable list as well, and say, put great big red crayon marks over them and say, don't go near them, then we will have failed. The second thing I think is really important in this is, you know, and Lean's very, very interested in this, is that laws by themselves can't fix it. We've, uh, we've had laws, you know, that, and, and many people who were even involved in writing those laws 20 years ago say they've got all these things in it, that, you know, that are really great that, you know, if only anyone, someone applied them. And our, our view is it's that, you know, the laws are important, but unless they're actually enforced and given life, then, then you know, they will have limited efficacy. And so that the institutions that surround them are important. So the EPA is important. But we believe that actually setting up a National Environment Commission is just as important. Uh, in many, many areas of, of public policy, we have these independent entities to help improve policy. And when the um, Australian Panel of in, in, in Experts on Environmental Law first designed the architecture on which Samuel's Review and which these reforms are based, they said we needed these two institutions. We need an EPA to be the regulator, but we needed a policy innovation independent entity. You know, because if biodiversity is in collapse, is there any other area of public policy that needs policy innovation more? We need creativity. We need big thinking. And, you know, the department, departmental process has proved over 20 years that it's not up to it. 
It doesn't have the mandate, the skills or the motivation. So I guess we're really pushing for an institution which, you know, is kind of analogous to a climate change authority for the environment, that we give it tasks within the legal system because, you know, as we've been talking about, it's quite complicated. So we believe we need the National Environment Commission to do all those tasks, to set the standards, to test the standards, to check the conservation planning's up to scratch, to do a whole bunch of things within the legal framework, but also to be the place for policy innovation. So we think that a National Environment Commission becomes this incredibly central idea in us cracking this, this problem. So we think building institutions is really important. Next, what can we do to save Australia's environment? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. I want to make sure we briefly touch on native forest logging because I know both you, Felicity and David, have been speaking about this and passionate about it. It is a really glaring hole in Australia's environment laws. Um, Despite destroying threatened species habitat, it's exempt for our national environment laws. Why are you both so passionate about talking about this and about ending native forest logging? We we really can't make good on the, the no new extinctions commitment without ending native forest logging. Makes, it doesn't make economic sense anymore. You know, Victoria have shown leadership in ending it early. Um, the regional forestry agreements aren't subject to EBBC. So, so, so there's no real um, oversight of how's this going to affect threatened species when we do this logging. And Graham Samuel in his report said this should change. And so we've been saying to the government, well, do it now. They're putting it off till the big the big reforms happen. But in the meantime, we're going to be losing tens of thousands of hectares of really valuable habitat. And it it just doesn't make sense anymore. In Tasmania, the government has has subsidised logging to the tune of about $1.5 billion over the last 20 years. There's a report looking at the, the north coast of New South Wales showing that I think it's around $300 million they'll save if they end logging now um, up to, and they'll save that up to 2040. So there's huge benefits if we have the leadership to actually make this transition, invest in these communities that have been dependent on logging and transition them to tourism, to industries of of the future. And you'll be be saving tens of thousands of hectares of really valuable, you know, koala, glider, 
all, all these different species that are that are doing it tough. I do want to move on to Dr. Rose. I didn't get to mention earlier, but you lead an organisation called Country Needs People, which advocates for greater funding and support for Indigenous protected areas and Indigenous ranges. And the Australian government has made some promises around this to create 10 new Indigenous protected areas and double the number of Indigenous ranges. Have you seen a big shift between the changing of the governments and the the focus on this much-needed First Nations-centred approach to protecting the environment? We certainly welcome the... uh welcome the uh, the decisions by the government. I think it's, it's certainly a positive step. As been mentioned before, the Federal Department of Environment, which I must uh, admit that I worked for 20-something years ago, uh, has been gutted, uh, absolutely gutted over the years. And the expertise, the, the commitment that I seen when I was working there was is just missing. Um, and I think that we see this with country needs people, that it's not just about putting some money out there. That's not going to solve it or improve things necessarily. It's about getting good support, getting good project officers within the department to to get out there to provide advice, support, make linkages with other agencies, with NGOs, et cetera, uh, and traditional owners to really get out and and have a, a good understanding of what's happening out on country. I see it so often that uh, there's decisions that are made, you know, from a 1,000 500 kilometres away, that people just don't understand what's happening out on the ground. And, and that certainly needs to, to, to change. And I look forward to a progress, a, an implementation of this program that actually reflects the importance of getting this right, of supporting traditional owners, not running, running them, as I mentioned earlier, not, not uh, overseeing uh, necessarily, but supporting them with advice, with expertise, with these linkages, Mm. they're extremely important. Now, the government is only one part of the picture here, a big part. They have a lot of power to make change here. But I think everyone here would agree that we can't rely on the government to do all of this work and to save our environment. There's a lot that businesses can do, communities, individuals as well. I want to just go to the panel about some of the things that they're seeing really in communities that give them hope, that are kind of models for action on more of a local level. David, what what have you seen? What kind of community programs give you some hope there? I know across Australia, people had different experiences of of COVID and and the lockdowns. So I think in in Canberra, there were a huge number of people walking, spending more time outside. And I think a bit of a shift in, in people's perspective and noticing the, you know, the incredible trees around and, and all the rest. And in Canberra, some of the, I think, really hopeful projects are our local land care groups where people are looking after bushland, doing sort of um, invasive species control, plantings, putting up nest boxes, all those sorts of things. And then in Canberra, there's um, this place called Mulligan's Flat Woodland Sanctuary, which is literally on the edge of, of the, the suburbs and they've fenced, I think it's about 1,500 hectares, uh, removed all the rabbits, foxes, cats, and have introduced, reintroduced uh, betongs, quolls, a whole bunch of species that have been locally extinct there for uh, 80, 100 years. Mm. And just seeing the way that the landscape is, is changing is incredible. But I think the, the really important role it plays is, is actually sparking imagination of what it can be like in the future. 
we can't go back to how it, how it was. That's not going to happen. There's, there's been too much damage, but we can reimagine what the future can look like. We're one of the wealthiest countries in the world. If this is a priority, we can turn things around. And I think it's projects like that where people are able to access it, feel like they're part of it, mm. you know, be immersed in, in the wonders of, of nature that I think we'll start to see this cultural shift where we say, hang on, let's do this. You know, $2 billion to save species. <laughs> let's vote for a government that's actually going to make that happen. If because you care the about the bittern, is, then the you'll want the $2 billion, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> Dr Rose, you've been involved in a program to protect the Australasian bittern. It's been described as a secretive bird with a distinctive booming call. It is often is more often heard than seen. Can you tell me about this mysterious bird and this program? Well, as you said, it is mysterious and I don't know a real lot about it. We don't see many of them, but uh, we have... Um, worked uh, in, in partnership with uh, some NGOs and with the State Department of Environment, um, which keep changing their name, um, and uh, and also the local catchment management authority. We've re-established wetlands on, on our properties. Um, we've been doing some cultural burning, so reintroducing uh, small-scale uh, cool burning, uh, cultural burning on the country for a variety of reasons, and one of those was to... Um, to burn around some of the wetlands that we've re-established and uh, to assist in the the, uh, the habitat for, for the Australasian bittern. Mm. And uh, just recently uh, we, we've had some listening posts put in and uh, certainly we've, we've heard the bird, haven't seen it as yet, but uh, they do tell me it's there. But we certainly have quite clearly identified that it uh, is the bittern and we have re-established that. So Re-establishing that wetland is not just important for a species, but it's also important culturally. It's it's our lifeblood in a sense. The uh, as I said before, the the the, the water in, in the system really defines the the, the, the budgebeam lava flow, and uh, we we need to make sure uh, that we we continue to to look after not just where our boundaries are, but it's that as I said, the big catchment area, um, and we work fairly closely. We ran a program called Yarns on Farms where we got out to farmers and uh, talked with them and, and walked walked on some of the properties, talked about cultural heritage issues, environmental issues with them, also tapped into their local knowledge as well. So mm. really working closely with our neighbours is extremely important. Whoever came up with Yarns on Farms needs a, a medal. <laughs> oh, I'd love great. to take credit for it, but it wasn't me. <laughs> Adam, what about you? Got any great uh, emails from readers that uh, <laughs> inspire you? No? Uh, I get a mix of emails. Yeah. <laughs> Not all happy. <laughs> no, I mean, I don't, I don't think I can really knock some of the other examples but um, not long after I started as a full-time environment writer I was living in Melbourne and there was the black uh, Saturday bushfires in early 2009 which were horrific and killed more than 170 people and really devastated the Central Highlands forests and one of my formative I guess on ground early environment reporting um, issues that I covered was covering the response by the forestry industry and the authorities in government after those fires, which was to engage in a fairly uh, aggressive round of what was called salvage logging, which if you think about it, is a fairly interesting name. You know, we're going to save the trees by going and cutting down the ones that have been burnt. And there was a, a continuation of the logging program in the much diminished forest. So this had real impact for 
the survival of those mountain ash forests and the species that lived in them. And at that time, I met people who had already campaigned for years for those forests to be protected and have worked relentlessly and tirelessly over the more than decade since and increasingly turned to making the case that um, protecting the forests is um, not just a good in itself, but also cutting it down doesn't make economic sense anymore. And there's other ways that these can work better for people as well as preserving what's left of them. Mm. And that's taken too long, but that campaign has finally succeeded. And I think of the people who worked on that over a long period of time who I've known for a long time. And, and that's uh, been extraordinary dedication on their behalf. So I think, you know, these um, the people who persist can win out. Mm. I'm sure everyone here has thought about how to make people care, how to actually motivate people every day to invest in some of the solutions that you've sort of, that you're putting forward or that community is putting forward. I'm wondering if you have any wisdom about, you know, how you operate, how you, for example, work within one of the biggest institutions in in the country, the government, um, to try and get people on board with protecting the environment. David? Well, I think Australians do care. Um, you know, poll after poll shows that Australians do care about nature. F- for me, it's, a, it's about translating that into actually having a government that is going to, to do what it, what it takes to, to look after nature. And I think part of the issue is around reporting of, of nature and climate change. You, you go to the homepage of, of any of our sort of major news um, providers and there's not too many environment buttons. I know, I know the Guardian's one is, is, is prominent, but it's, it just doesn't really feature. And I think we're, we're bombarded with all this other bad news, but it, we, we seldom tell the truth about what's happening in Australia. And I think if people actually knew the truth, then there would be a lot more pressure on government to actually, to actually deliver because we, we do care. But I think part of it is, you know, we're largely a, a country of immigrants and to go back to that, so those sort of shifting baselines, we don't know what we've lost. And uh, I think, you know, that is, that is part of it, actually coming, coming to terms with that mm. and, and trying to work out, well, how do we, how do we go forward? How, how can we salvage as much as we possibly can of the natural world? Because I, I think, you know, every... Um, E.O. Wilson said, every scrap of biological diversity is worth fighting for. Um, And I think that's that's the approach we've got to to go with. Dennis, you convinced the United Nations maybe to care about a a cultural landscape. (laughs) Got any wisdom to share? Look, I think that uh, certainly with our World Heritage nomination, it was a community, whilst it was traditional owner-led, we certainly relied on good partnerships, good information, good information sharing, working closely with people. Um, The number of reports that assisted our nomination, there's a very big list uh, over many years. And I think that we deliberately made sure that we were transparent about what we wanted to do. I always talk about learning by showing, you know, we, uh, or showing by learning, um, that, that take people out on country, country, you can, it, it'll tell the story. One of despair in a sense, but one of hope in, in another sense, that uh, the country, we can work together and, and that's the message we get to people. 
certainly since World Heritage Inscription, a lot more people visiting country. Uh, so that opportunity for awareness raising is there. Um, thank you, everyone. And thank you so much to the panel. Just one more. That was an edited version of our Vivid Sydney event on Sunday. You heard from Adam Morton, our climate and environment editor at Guardian Australia, Gunnar Man and conservation expert Dr Dennis Rose, ACT Senator David Pocock and National Co-Convener of Lean, Felicity Wade. That's it for today. This episode was produced by Alison Chan and Karishma Luthria with sound design and mixing by Camilla Haddon. Our theme music is by Joe Koning. The executive producer is Hannah Parks. Thanks for listening. I'm Laura Mefiotes. Catch you next time. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, my name is Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic, and I'm excited to talk to you about Club Med. Club Med operates beach and mountain resorts and is the best all-inclusive getaway for families. They have Club Med Punta Cana, their flagship family resort, and many other options in Mexico, the Caribbean, and around the world. Club Med are the pioneers of the all-inclusive concept, which is the best way to vacation. Great for families, groups, or even solo travelers looking for land and water sports, delicious food and a place to make unforgettable memories. Visit clubmed.us, call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor.